All right, if you can start making your way back to your seats, I'm going to have Angie come and read our scripture reading this evening. So you can turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 19. We're just going to look at verses 41 through 44. As he approached and saw the city, he wept for it, saying, If you knew this day what would bring peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes, for the days will come on you when your enemies will build a barricade around you, surround you, and hem you in on every side. They will crush you and your children among you to the ground, and they will not leave one stone on another in your midst because you did not recognize the time when God visited you. All right, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, again, we thank you for this day. Uh, We thank you for all of your many blessings. We thank you for the blessings of fellowship, um, of our congregational gathering. We thank you for the blessings of music and singing. God, we thank you for a time that we can open your word, that you can use your word to... Uh, form us in the image of Jesus Christ, God, that we can get a clear and true picture of your son, Jesus, um, that um, we can know him better um, and in turn uh, see your calling on our lives uh, better um, because of your word. Father, we pray that you would use this to to cement the gospel in our hearts, God, that you would use it to... Um, God, change our values and uh, our attitudes towards the world around us. Father, we, we at the same time pray for, um, as we often do, um, for uh, your um, ministry and the gospel ministry um, of the churches of Blunt County. God, this week, we particularly pray for uh, St. Brennan's Anglican Church, um, God, because of the... Um, uh, the tragedy um, that has has befallen them in in uh, the loss of uh, their pastor Doug's home to fire. Um, God, you um, have God bless Doug in so many ways. He is an encouragement and a friend to so many um, people in this community, particularly to other pastors. He is an encourager uh, and a source of of wisdom and. Um, God, we thank you for his ministry in that church and the ministry that that church represents to this community. But God, we also specifically pray for him, uh, and his wife as, as they, um, uh, go through this time of, of trial. God, we thank you and, and praise you, um, for your providence that they, uh, were able to get out of the house, um, safely, um, uh, and yet, God, we recognize the the um, difficulty that comes um, with the loss of home and um, conveniences and and all the different um, things that we have accumulated over the years. God, um, God, we just ask that you would bless um, Doug. 
um, and uh, bless their church during this time. Um, God, that you would help us to come alongside and to serve and um, God, to assist um, in any way uh, that we can. Father, again, we thank you for your word. We thank you for a time that we get to open it and look into it and share in it. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so uh, again, we're in Matthew. I lied to you last week. I was thinking that there was going to be a little kind of reversal of passages because I was, uh, uh, Tanner is going to come and preach next week, and I thought we were going to have to rearrange some things, but I realized I was wrong about that. We still had a section before the section that Tanner had, and so that's what we're going to be in tonight, a very short section, one that we probably could have attached and connected to last week's sermon, but but we're going to take it as its own um, piece. And um, I want to start with with sort of an illustration that C.S. Lewis shares with us, where he talks about um, the idea of of um, the the hidden things in our lives, uh, maybe the the way that we react to things poorly or sinfully um, or something like that. And he gives an illustration of going into your basement and uh, finding uh, rats there. And he says, if you, if you go down into the basement and you're, and you're making noise as you come down the steps and you're trampling around and you're hitting the light and everything, oftentimes you walk down and you'll get to the bottom of the basement and you'll look and there won't be anything, there's nothing there, right? And you look around and you go, oh, well, you know, there, there are no rats in this basement. There's no mice. There's no problem at all. Everything seems to be clean. Um, but the difference is, is that sometimes when you surprise the basement, you could say, when you suddenly and quietly come into it and flip on the light and look, then that's when you will see all these mice scurrying around or something like that. And he uses that as an illustration of our own hearts to say that sometimes in the midst of, of surprise or, or some kind of trial, we actually end up seeing um, the, the, the depravity and the, and the broken places in our lives, right? That when we are prepared for things, and that, that it's, it's easy for us to hide or to, to prepare ourselves so that we don't show our sin. But it's in those moments of trial um, that, that our sin can oftentimes be revealed. I share that story at the beginning of this is because we come to this, this situation as Jesus is coming into the city of Jerusalem during at the beginning of the last week of his life. And we talked about last week that two things are going on, at least in that story, that Jesus on one level is being triumphantly welcomed into the city. So he is coming into the city, um, being cheered. People are um, blessing his name and calling out, you know, Hosanna in the highest and all these things. And so on one side, it's very triumphant. And yet at the same time, Jesus knows exactly what is going to happen in a week, okay? He knows that the people are going to turn. He knows that he will be betrayed. He knows that he'll be arrested and tortured and crucified and killed, all right? And so, again, this moment of this this crucible, this moment of trial and concern is the kind of place that would reveal our true character, right? In a moment of trial, you would see the kind of person that you really were. The, the, the places that you don't show everybody would, would be revealed. And I think something happens similar to Jesus, except as you would expect, what we see in Jesus' moment of trial is, is something beautiful and, and pristine and, and, um, and awe-inspiring. Uh, he doesn't respond the way sinful mankind would respond in the same situation. 
So we're going to kind of see a picture of that as we go through this passage. Because what the passage is about is it is about the coming judgment of Israel. It's about the coming judgment, particularly of the city of Jerusalem. And, and Jesus comments on that. And if you, if you notice in the passage, the first thing that maybe we're going to, sort of the beginning of the passage and the very end of the passage is bookended by these two ideas of Israel's ignorance. Israel's ignorance about their opportunity for salvation. Okay. And that's, that's talked about in two different ways. In one place at the end of the passage, Israel is said to be ignorant. They did not know the time of their visitation, all right? That's the first problem. So Jesus comes to the city and he says, Israel, you didn't know that this was the moment, this was the time of your visitation, okay? Now, visitation is an interesting word, kind of a weird phrase, right? Not the way that we would say things probably in our current parlance or whatever, but visitation is talking about Jesus coming to the city, but generally in the Bible, it's talking about any time God comes to his people, typically in one of two contexts, either to rescue, he visits his people to rescue, or he visits his people in judgment. So for example, Jeremiah over and over again uses the language of visitation, but he uses it in the context of judgment. Jeremiah, you know, is the prophet who is who is saying, hey, man, Israel, our time's up um, and God is coming to judge the nation. And so over and over again, he talks about the fact that God is going to visit his people in judgment. But in Job, for example, chapter 10, um, we see that God visits in another context. So the passage reads, thou hast granted me life and favor and thy visitation hath preserved my spirit. Right. And so, again, there's a picture of God visiting his people, but it's in it's in grace. It's in peace. It's in salvation. It's in rescue. Now, here's a cool thing about that word visitation in the New Testament. It's only used two times here and in one other place. But it's the same word. The word that is episcopo. Right. Episcopo is the word that is where we get the idea of an Episcopal form of church government. But basically what it means in the Bible is overseer. So when we talk about a visitation, the New Testament picture is someone showing up to oversee, to inspect what's going on in the situation, all right? And Jesus says, you didn't realize the time of your visitation. You didn't realize that I was here to visit you, bringing either judgment or, or salvation, and to ex- inspect um, you as a people. So John tells us, if anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge them. That's what Jesus says. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Jesus is saying, I came to visit you, and I came to bring you rescue. I came to bring you salvation. That was the kind of visit that I was here for. Not a visit to judge you. And in, to inspect the situation you're in, but not, I was, I was here to, to rescue you. It's for salvation that Jesus is in the city. And yet his words and his testimony that he gave while he was there will ultimately on the day of judgment be what does judge the people. So then he goes on in John to say, the one who rejects me does not receive my words. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge the word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day, 
Right? So Jesus comes and he says, I'm here to rescue you. But on the day of judgment, if you don't receive that rescue, the words that I've been saying, the things that I've been teaching, those will be the words that stand to prosecute you on the day of judgment. This, this visitation is about mercy, but if that mercy is rejected, this visitation will ensue in judgment or will result in judgment. Okay? So he says, you didn't know the day, you didn't know the time of the visitation that was coming upon you. And then it also says in verse 42, sort of at the beginning of the passage, he says, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that would make for peace. So the other thing that they are unaware of is not only that they are being visited by God for their salvation, but they also don't realize what would make for peace in their lives. Now, here's another cool thing about this passage. Maybe you've always seen this, but I'll be honest, I never thought about this until I studied this passage this time. So that thing that makes for peace in verse 42 is the exact same phrase that we saw in Luke chapter 14. Okay, Luke chapter 14 is the story. Do you remember where he's talking about counting the cost of being a, a disciple? And he says, he gives the illustration. If two armies are coming together and one army realizes it's outnumbered and is going to lose, it makes sense to count the cost and go ahead and what did it say? Go to the opposing king and to do the things that make for peace. Okay, basically bring um, uh, uh treaty or something, right? Go and, 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 and make peace with them while you still, still can. Okay. Now here's, what's interesting about that. Maybe you've always seen this, but I didn't last week. We talked about Jesus coming to Jerusalem, right? Humble and riding on a donkey. Um, and we made this distinction about him coming into the city on a white horse. And we said, those are two different pictures. One is of a conquering King. The other one is coming in, in a humble way. Now, I think here's the deal. When the Israelites, when the people of Jerusalem saw Jesus coming in on that donkey, they thought to themselves, and we talked about this last week, they thought to themselves, hey, our king is coming to our rescue. He is coming to overthrow the Romans. They have occupied our city. And now our king is coming to our rescue. And the donkey signals that Jesus is the Messiah. And everybody's already decided what kind of Messiah that is, a, a liberating Messiah. And so that's the way they would have seen it. But the language of the terms of peace, right, the things that make for peace, change the picture a little bit. The insight that I never grabbed was that in Jesus' coming, that there is a very real sense in which the Romans aren't the enemy. The Jews and Jerusalem are the enemy. Israel is not the captives in the story. Israel is the rebels. They're the ones from the parable two weeks ago, from the ten minas, who were the citizens who hated Jesus and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. Jesus' approach then to the city is not as a king for the people, but in a sense against the people. And what I mean by that is to say, as he approaches and as he comes on this donkey, the key is, is that he is not showing up against his people, Israel, as a conquering king in judgment. He is showing up in humility, offering peace to them, 
They're the enemy. They're the bad guys. They're the rebels. They're the ones who have rejected his rule. And yet he's showing up saying, I've come to make terms of peace with you. And I've come doing that in humility. I've come doing that not in judgment, but in grace to you. The people deserve what we read again in the the, the parable of the ten minas. Remember what it said? But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. That's what the parable said. That's what the, the city of Jerusalem deserves. But that's not what they're being offered. What they're being offered is peace and reconciliation by a merciful king, despite the fact that they are rebels against his throne. But they recognize neither of those things. They don't recognize their need to be reconciled. They don't recognize that Jesus is the one who can reconcile them. So here's an interesting thing of application. Um, The reality is, is Christians have enemies. It's funny because we don't like to say it that way. It seems like something you shouldn't say. Christians shouldn't say that they have enemies. Uh, We should say something like, well, you know, nobody's our enemy when we're a Christian. But that's not really the way the Bible talks. The Bible says, yeah, you have enemies. You're supposed to love your enemies, right? But it's not naive of the fact, the realities, that there are enemies out there. It just calls us to live in a radical way that is contrary to the way the rest of the world treats their enemies. But here's the deal. Again, we have real enemies, and we disagree on who those enemies are oftentimes, right? So I was just, again, the, the, all the stuff that goes on in our current cultural situation. Is it the sexual perversion of the LGBTQ movement that's our enemy? Or is it the internal perversion of sexual exploitation or abusers? Is it the political machinations of cultural Marxists? Or is it the Christian nationalists who are the problem? Is it the progressives who are messing everything up? Or is it the traditionalists who won't let us move on? I'll be honest, again, I think there's sin and evil and danger and dysfunction, sometimes even the demonic, on both sides of the issue in different places. But the point of this passage is something completely different. The enemies are not out there. The enemy is you. You're the enemy. You're the person in the city who Christ has come and said, You have rebelled against my throne, but I come offering peace. I come offering a way for you to be reconciled to God. I come bringing terms. Will you accept those terms? Again, it would be stupid for us to pretend like the Christian church does not have real enemies in the world. But the point we're getting at here is the enemies are oftentimes not out there, but they are ourselves. Again, I'm not even saying the enemies are in here. That's not what I'm saying either. Don't say, oh, you mean the enemies are the guy sitting next to me? No, the enemy is you. He's in your heart, all right? And that's the main problem. The Romans are real, but Jesus was coming to address a much more fundamental issue the issue of sin and separation from God on the basis of every single individual. So Israel doesn't recognize these things. They don't recognize their own plight. They don't recognize Jesus coming. They don't recognize a way to get out of it, the things that would make for peace. 
And you say, well, why don't they recognize it, Ash? What is the source of their ignorance? And there's one line in there that, man, makes people uncomfortable. It says they are ignorant, and the reason they're ignorant is, but now these things are hidden from your eyes. The reason they don't see them is because they're hidden from them. Now, again, that bothers us sometimes because we don't like the idea that truth would be hidden from us, particularly truth that we're going to be responsible for on the day of judgment. We don't like the idea that there's some power out there that could keep us from seeing the thing that would save us. But that seems to be the language of the Bible. So what is it that is hiding the truth from us? How is the truth being hidden? Well, we look at the scriptures and we see all kinds of things for that. Partially, we are blinded by Satan. Second Corinthians says, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Okay, so the first thing that we see, the reason why people can't see the truth is because Satan is, is the, the works of Satan are blinding people to that. That's, that's a biblical concept. We also see that our own sin blinds us to these truths. John 3 says, and this is the judgment, light has come into the world, but people loved darkness rather than light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. So there's a way in which we can say, you know what, the reason why my, I'm blind to the truths of, of who Jesus is and what he's come to do is because of my own sin. My own sin has blinded me to these things. And then there's also the concept that all of these things are in, cordon, in accordance with the sovereignty of God and his prophetic declaration. Again, the Gospel of John in the section following the triumphal entry. So the corresponding section of Scripture in John to the passage that we're in right now, it says this, when Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The reason why they didn't believe in him is so that Scripture would be fulfilled. And what was that word? Lord, who has believed what we have heard, what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they would see with their eyes and understand with their hearts and turn and would be healed. So as we said last week, it has to happen this way. Part of the reason why the people are blinded and can't see him, why they will reject him, betray him, and turn him over to the Romans is because it has to happen that way. That is the way that it is prophesied to happen. That is the way that God has sovereignly chosen for it to happen. If it doesn't happen that way, it means the death of all mankind. And yet, at the same time, it's not divorced from our own sinful choices. It's not divorced from the demonic work of Satan. But in God's sovereignty, all of these things come together to accomplish God's plans in a way that fulfilled the scriptures. So here's the deal. These are mysteries. People don't, man, we get, we get, we get real torn up in our own hearts and minds and thoughts about these things. But they're mysteries. 
We can make true statements like we just did. We can read the words of God and say, I can make affirmative statements about certain things, but I don't think there's any way that we can make comprehensive statements about it because we can't understand the mind of God. Paul basically says it like this. Oh, the depths and the riches of the wisdom of the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and inscrutable his ways. It's impossible to understand these things completely. But we see that it is a reality. These things are hidden from the Israelites. But what is not hidden, what is very clear, is that judgment is coming on them because of that. There's no question about that. And it will be a horrific judgment. So in verse 43, we read, it says, For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another. So here's the deal. If you, if you kind of read history and, and you're interested in those things, a lot of times we come to this idea that modern warfare is, is incredibly horrific, right? That, oh man, that the, the awfulness of modern warfare is, is so inhumane. And, and, and the fact that, you know, we have planes that drop bombs from, from hundreds of miles away, that all these things are so impersonal and, and inhuman or whatever. But here's the deal. Ancient warfare was horrifically ugly and horrifically brutal as well. What Jesus is prophesying, what he is looking ahead to, is what the future holds for the city of Jerusalem. And so if you look back in history in the year 70 AD, the city of Jerusalem has been rebelling against the Romans. There's been a number of uprisings. And finally, the Roman government says, it's not worth our time anymore, and we're going to wipe it off the face of the earth. And so they surround the city of Jerusalem, and they lay siege to it. And there's a stalemate at first, because it's a well-walled and well-defended city, and so there's a stalemate. So what the Romans do is they build their own wall. And they build a wall that completely encircles the entire city of Jerusalem so that nobody leaving the city can get out because there's a second set of walls. Anybody who makes a run for it is captured in the no man's land and crucified on the walls of the Roman side. By, uh, the historian Josephus says somewhere around 500 people a day. Starvation ensues. Again, Josephus tells us cannibalism. Bodies are dumped over the wall to rot in piles outside of the city. When the walls are finally breached, the estimate is is that a million people are killed in the city of Jerusalem. The temple is burned, but the rumor gets out that the gold that lined the temple has melted and what? Fallen in between the cracks in the stones. And so what do the Roman soldiers do? They come to the temple and they pull it apart piece by piece, hoping to find melted gold in between the rocks. The Roman general, who was in charge of of the attack, decrees that he wants no evidence of the city of Jerusalem left. He wants it to be wiped from the face of the earth, with the exception of what's called the Antonian Fortress, which was the Roman military garrison that sat in the corner of the city. It would remain as a testament to Roman rule, but everything else in the city would be razed to the ground. Now, what we find out is that 
They probably got lazy at some point. They just didn't actually raise every single piece to the ground. That's why you can still go back to Israel today and go and see walls and structures and foundations and things like that that are still left over from that era. But in general, the prophecy comes completely true. Jerusalem is laid to waste and millions of people lose their lives. That's the judgment that is coming because the people have rejected God. Because there's no other option at this point. There's God has removed his protection. He has removed his presence. And Israel is functionally existing as any other nation in the world. They suffer the whims and the attacks of, of evil men. And they go through the same troubles that everybody else goes through. Now, here's a question is, again, some people are put off by that when it comes to the character of God. They'll say, I don't, I don't know that I like a God who would hand over his people in such a way. But there's a reverse side to that that we see in this passage, and it's the main idea that I want to land on as, as, as we kind of come to a close, is we look at Jesus' response to what is going on. Because what we see in verse 41 is it says, when he drew near to the city, Remember, again, in the midst of this celebration, right, probably for everyone looking from the outside, the most triumphant and happy moment in all of Jesus' earthly ministry. Like, again, the disciples who have been clueless about what Jesus means when he says, I'm going to be killed. The disciples are probably thinking, this is what we've been waiting for the whole time. This is why we signed up three years ago. This is the... This is, this is what we were shooting for. And yet Jesus, what it say? Jesus, as he draws near to the city, he saw the city and he began to weep over it. As everybody else is celebrating around him, Jesus goes into the city weeping over the city. He's not weeping for himself, although he knows what awaits him in the next few days. He knows the horrific nature of the torture that he is going to undergo, something that would certainly make any one of us weep. But he's not crying for himself. He is weeping for the lostness of the city. He is weeping over a people who will never accept him, who will never repent, who will never return, who will never acknowledge their sin, who will never cast themselves on God's mercy. And he weeps over them. Now, again, I can imagine lots of ways that people might respond to the position that Jesus was in. I would respond in anger. Thinking back to the story of the prodigal son and big brother theology, I would express anger in that moment. I would say, what a waste of good. What a waste of life. What a waste of beauty. Because you stupid, defiant people won't just repent. You won't turn back to God. And I'd be angry about it because of their stupidity, because of their presumption. I can imagine someone being self-righteously judgmental in that situation. Although it's a little bit silly for us to talk about self-righteousness in terms of Jesus because Jesus is the only person who actually can be self-righteous because he's the only person who is righteous in himself. But I can imagine somebody being in that same position and saying, you know what, Israel, you're going to get what you deserve. 
You've had the chance to turn and you won't do it. I have no sympathy for you because you brought this on yourselves, which of course is true at a level. But that's not how Jesus responds. Jesus in that situation is broken hearted. He knows what will happen and he sees the tragedy of it and he weeps for Jerusalem. So again, it is convicting to ask the question to ourselves. Are we moved by the plight of the lost? Are we moved by those who do not know Jesus? Do we respond to those people in anger, in cool, unconcern? Is that the default of our hearts? I can tell you this, that in ministry, and I've talked about this many times probably, there's a numbing process that goes on in ministry. There's a process by which you put up shields against hopes and expectations so that you can fend off disappointment because those things are part and parcel with ministry. Just come along with it, but you try to protect yourselves from it certain ways. But at the same time, as you do that, you shield yourself off from the right emotions that you should have in these situations, but not Jesus. Jesus is not stoic in this story. He's not afraid to be sad. He's not afraid to weep at something. He knows they aren't going to believe, right? He knows that they not only will reject him, but they will condemn him in a few days. That that condemnation will result in his death and their judgment. And he is brokenhearted because of that. It's not God's judgment on display in this passage, which is what many people would see but it's God's mercy in Jesus' tears that we are looking at. God doesn't desire the death of the world. Zechariah says, God asks or he wants that the wicked would turn from their ways and live. Turn back. Turn back from your evil ways. Why will you die, O house of Israel? That's what God calls to his people. He says, I'm not, I'm not here to show you up and to destroy you. I'm not, that's, I'm not excited about that. I want even this moment. I wish you knew. I wish you could see what would make for your salvation. What would make for you to be saved on this day? And yet you don't see it. I want your life and you are choosing death in the midst of that. We have to turn, though. We have to believe. We have to repent. Again, just a few weeks ago in Luke chapter 13, what did Jesus say as he was there in the city, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to it? How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. It's easy for us to look at these passages and and. Think about the sovereignty of God and the judgment that comes and miss the mercy of God and the rebellion and unwillingness of our own sinful hearts. Because the reality is is this. Jesus is king. 
He has ridden into our world with terms of surrender. He has ridden in and said, I offer you peace, but I'm the one making the terms. They're incredible terms. They will cost Jesus everything. And they will cost us functionally nothing. Only that we would repent, submit, and trust in Christ alone. That's the terms of surrender. It's pretty good terms. And yet the people of Israel, they're not interested. I pray that that is not the way our hearts work. The reality is, is that I assume and hope that most of us in here are followers of Jesus Christ. You have trusted in Jesus Christ. You have acknowledged your sin and said, God, I'm the problem. My sin is the problem. Not the enemies out there. They're real, but that's not the problem. I'm the problem. I acknowledge my sin. I confess my sin to you, and I trust in Jesus Christ alone for my salvation. I accept your terms. I want you to come to me as a king who is humble and merciful, not as one who comes in judgment and condemnation. Jesus has offered his terms to us. Are we willing to accept those terms? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, it is easy for us to be, to have our focus in the wrong place. God, it is easy for us to constantly be looking outside of our own hearts instead of recognizing that you have come to deal with our hearts. God, help us to recognize the ministry that you have. God, the fact that you have come to save me, to save each one of us, to come to demand each of our surrenders, that we would lay down our lives and trust in you alone for our salvation. God, help us recognize um, all those voices that are around us. God, the naysayers, the people who are, are violently opposed to your word and your gospel, the people who mock it, the scoffers that we have spoken of in recent weeks. God, those who have said they are uninterested in the salvation that you provide. God, help us to have a concern for those people that would image the concern that Jesus had as he looked at a Jerusalem that was doomed. God, we don't have those same assurances about the people around us. It is easy for us to be pessimistic. It is easy for us to, to, to look at those people, those enemies, and to say uh, there is no hope and the die is cast. But God, you haven't told us those things.
God, it is our calling to take the gospel to a lost and dying world, to tell others how they can know Jesus Christ and be saved by him. Help us to do that with a heart uh, that acknowledges all the truths that we have seen tonight. We thank you. We praise you. God, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We stand and sing the closing song.
Is that a new, new song or old new song? New, new, new song. Yeah, I like that song. Um, good to see you. Glad you're here. Um, so next week, uh, Tanner's going to come and he's going to be sharing with us from the next section in the Gospel of Luke. Um, I will be back um, going down to to uh, help my dad try to start moving some of his stuff up here because he continues to try to move up here. And so we're hoping we can get that going, but we're going to go down and fly down and get a U-Haul and, and bring a bunch of stuff back up with me. So um, you'll kind of say a prayer for that everything works smoothly because I'm working on a pretty tight timetable. And so if I get a flight that gets canceled or something, that may that may mess up my plans for the whole week. So, um, but uh, God willing, I'll see you next Sunday and um, hope you have a great week. Here's the benediction as you go. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. Turn his face towards you and give you peace. See you next week. Mm-hmm.